All right, everyone. Welcome to Real A Theology. I'm your host, Ben Watkins. And my co-host, Ben, go ahead and say something. Uh, I'm your co-host, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> We've well, got to come up with some something like you're Ben B and I'm Ben W or something. Yeah. Didn't really... We've got to come up with something. And well, anyways, we're joined today by Alex Malpass. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, I say Malpass, but yeah. Malpass, okay. Um, And we're going to do a little bit more discussion along the lines of the Kalam cosmological argument. So um, for those who don't know, our last episode was episode 19, and it was all on the Kalam cosmological argument. So, um, obviously Ben and I have listened to that episode. Alex, have you, you've listened to that episode as well? I did. I listened to it like cycling into work this morning. So I, yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So what'd you think? Uh, where do we, where, where how do we kind of want to kick things off? I just felt like I had like, um, an objection or something to where the way you guys were putting it, I suppose. It wasn't that I disagreed with you, but, um, it's just because I'd been doing some work on the Kalam recently anyway that I was, I just thought I would drop you a line because we're friends on Facebook anyway. So I was just like, you know, Hey, awesome. I've been thinking about the Kalam recently. I don't suppose you want to chat about it sometime. So, uh, that was my motivation for getting in touch, I guess. Uh, so what I've been doing was working on a paper with, um, Wes Morriston on, um, developing a kind of dialectic that he's been having with Craig um, in print. They've got, I think, like three or four kind of paper exchange with each other where they're going back and forth over this particular issue. Um, and we decided to sort of share the load and write a paper between the two of us, pushing it on to the next level of the, the dialectic, basically. Cool. So, I mean, well, I guess well, okay. Um so, I mean, the paper's in review at the moment at a journal, so I suppose <laughs> I have to hope that – it seems unlikely, I guess, but I have to hope that the reviewer of the paper doesn't listen to this episode, because then if he did, he would know it was me, and then it wouldn't be blind review and blah, 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 blah. Um, so, assuming that's not going to happen, I'll just explain um, the situation. So, the, I guess it goes a bit like this. It's um, – so let's see, how, how's the best way to recap the dialectic? So you guys were talking about this, I think. Um, the way this argument runs is it's looking at the premise, which is that um, the universe began to exist. Right? And one of the supporting okay. arguments that Craig offers for this is that um, is that uh, a beginningless series of events is um, impossible. Right? And one of the reasons for thinking why that might be the case is that if there were a beginningless series of events, it would constitute what's described as an actual infinity or a completed infinity. And Craig says that while those things are kind of acceptable in a mathematical sense, right, you can, in some sense, you can talk about set theory um, that, that, that deals with uh, infinite sets. Um, nevertheless, you can't have something instantiated in reality that is that has those properties, right? Um, would it be fair to say that we we uh, that, that Craig's view is that we can have um, potential infinites, but we can't have actual infinites? Yeah, that's the, is that how he puts it. That's the move that we're going to focus on. Um, okay. So 
the difference between, well, a completed infinity or an actual infinity is kind of straight, there's a kind of classic straightforward definition for that, right? which is something like um, it's a set um, where you can take a subset of that set, a proper subset of that set, and place all of the elements in that proper subset in a, into a one-to-one correspondence with the original set. Right? So if you think about the, the set of the natural numbers, and then you take a proper subset of that, which is like the even numbers, right? then you could place each of the even numbers in a one-to-one correspondence with the original set of natural mm-hmm. numbers. Right? So that shows you that the, that, um, that you can do that with the natural numbers, shows you that that set is an infinite set, it's a completed infinity. So any set where you can do that, that's that's what we mean by a completed infinity. So in some sense, there's a kind of straightforward mathematical definition of what that is. Now, a potential infinite is not quite so straightforward what that means as in a mathematical sense, right? It means something like an ever-increasing set, right? It's, it's always, can always increase further without limit. There's no stopping point. So imagine counting, you just keep counting and keep counting and keep counting. There's no limit to how many numbers you can count. Um, but the number of numbers that you will have counted at any one point is always going to be finite. But you can always keep going. So in some sense, the, it's a, this is what Craig means by a potential infinite, something that's increasing towards infinity as a limit um, forever. Um, so the, here's, here's the move, right? The idea is supposed to be, Craig says um, that an infinite past, an endless past, is absurd, right? Because it would have these features of Hilbert's Hotel that you were talking about before. Um, mm-hmm. the, the response is something like, well, don't you believe, Craig, in a never-ending afterlife, right? Don't you think that eventually you're going to die and go to heaven and then you're going to be in heaven forever in whatever kind of rapturous state, or perhaps, I mean, you know, unlucky you end up in hell, but either way around, you're going to be somewhere forever, right? kind of never-ending, isn't there going to be an endless future ahead of us, just like there's a beginningless past behind us? Um, and if there was something absurd about there being a beginningless past, surely there should be something absurd about there being an endless future as well, right? So um, it seems like there's a kind of inconsistency there. You can't, on the one hand, argue that the past can't be infinite because an infinite thing would be absurd but at the same time say that well the future is infinite but there's nothing absurd about that right um so the accusation is supposed to be how do you have how do you eat that how do you have that cake and eat it at the same time and craig's move there is to say well look um a beginningless series would be a completed infinity but an endless uh, future series would only be a potential infinity and he says well there's really nothing absurd about a potential infinity right it, Potential infinity is always finite. You know, at any step, it's always finite. So there's nothing absurd there. That's the response. And that's where that's where the argument that me and Morriston were um, playing around with kicks in at that point. So um, I don't want to just give a lecture. I mean, <laughs> uh, does, does that make sure, sense? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So because he's saying there's just nothing objectionable with the idea that the universe began to exist a finite time ago and can go on, quote unquote, infinitely into the future. But there's nothing problematically problematic that's going to arise there. But we can't do that in the other direction. We can't yeah. move backwards like that. And that's so right. you're saying, look, consistency would say, you know, like, well, why can we, why can it go this way and not that way? Uh huh. Right. Right. And so there's certain 
things that Craig says, which he tries to motivate the idea that there's an asymmetry, right? So what Craig's after is a symmetry breaker. It's kind of the technical term that there's something different about past and the future. And that that difference makes it such that there's nothing absurd about an infinite, a never ending series of future events, but that there is something absurd about um, a never beginning set of past events, right? Even though on their face, they seem like they're just kind of symmetric to one another. At least that's the intuition that me and Morriston share. So what we're doing is dealing with his attempts at making a symmetry breaker. Right? So he says various things that try and motivate that. Um, I suppose the core of the argument runs. Uh, so it's a mathematical, there's a mathematical kind of model that we use to show that in some sense, you, you can't have, um, I think this is the core of the, the, the argument. In, in some sense, mathematically, you can't have a potential infinite without an actual infinite. And this is what Craig's doing is kind of pretending that there's, that you can just have a potential infinite and forget about the actual infinite that, that kind of necessarily corresponds to it. Um, let me see if I can explain this argument. It is mathematical, but it's very straightforward, really. It's just sometimes it's difficult to paint a mathematical argument um, <laughs> completely in the medium of, of audio without any kind of whiteboard to explain this further. <laughs> sure, let me, sure. Let me see if I can do this. So um, the, what we need is simply just the idea of a function, right, which is very straightforward. Uh, it just means it's a mathematical rule, essentially, that takes something as an input and gives you something as an output. Right? So it's an in-out uh, machine, if you like. Um, and we're going to look at two um two different functions. Uh, one which we'll call the C function for the Craig function, um, and one which is we'll call the M function for Morriston function. Right? So the idea is that, um, that, let me set this up a little bit before we get stuck into the maths, right? That, that, that in, in the dialectic, uh, Morriston's got this thought experiment of um, imagine that there'd been um, a demon who is cursing his his fate uh one interval of time at, at one regular interval of time after another right so he says uh, at t0 he says a curse and then at t1 he says another curse and at t2 he says another curse right and the idea is just that this immortal being the demon who's like stuck in in hell or something is just cursing his fate right he does nothing else than just do that um and the idea is well i mean on craig on or not necessarily craig's but on anyone's view uh, according to which the future is never ending. Um, this demon's going to be saying curses forever, right? Um, and now here, here's where the distinction between the functions kicks in. Obviously, um, Craig's going to say, well, at any moment you pick, the number of curses that the demon will have said is going to be finite, right? The number of demons that he will have said at any one point will be finite. Um, and Morriston's reply is that well, the number of curses yet to be said is always infinite, right? And that, that's where the, the move comes in. So let's, let's make this mathematical, right? So take this, the natural numbers, right? From, from zero, whole positive integers right the way up to infinity, right? Um, yep. now take a function, the C function, what Craig is insisting on is it's a function that takes a single number as its input and it gives you back a set of numbers and the set of numbers is all numbers that are less than or equal to the input so if i take two as the input 
the set of numbers that I get back as the output is going to be 0, 1, and 2. Right? It's going to be a finite set with three elements in it. Um, so fairly straightforward, I think. So the C yeah. function, whatever input you put into it, the output is always going to be finite. And that's like Craig saying the number of curses that the demon will have said is always going to be finite. Like no matter what time you ask him how many curses he said, he's always going to give you a, a number of curses, which is finite. Um, and no matter how long he curses for, that's never going to turn into, he's never going to say, oh, I've suddenly completed the infinity and I've suddenly said infinite curses. He's always going to have only said a finite number of curses. Um, but then, so the other function, the M function, it's very straightforward. It just, it's just another input takes a single number as an input um, and the output's going to be a set of numbers again. But the rule for this is just that the set of numbers that you get in the output function is a set of numbers that are strictly greater than the input function, the input number. So if we take two as the input number, then it's going to be all of the numbers greater than two, right? So it's going to be three, four, five, six, blah, 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 all the way up and, and to infinity. Um, you can see that any number you put in to the M function, whether it's two or 10 million or whatever, the output you're going to get is always going to be um, a set of numbers which can be put in a one-to-one correspondence um, with the natural numbers. Right? It's going to be an infinite set, a completed actual infinity. Right? Just as the output of the C function is going to be finite, the output of the M function is always going to be an actual infinity. So what this shows is that as the value of this C function increases towards infinity as a limit, right, it's a potential infinite, there's always, by definition, um, an M function that's hanging around with it for which the output is an actual completed infinity. And that is just a very, very straightforward, simple mathematical proof, essentially. It's very straightforward. Um, and in some sense, what it shows you is that you can't have a potential infinite without a corresponding actual infinite. And it just carries over into the into the curses case. So we just say, like, um, at any moment, how many curses will have been said? And the answer, whatever the number is, is going to be a finite number. Um, but also, if you ask a different question, at any moment, how many curses are there yet to be said? The answer is going to be um, an actual completed infinity's worth of, of curses are still yet to be said. Right? So... You can't have it that there's uh, the potential infinity increasing forever without limit unless there's a kind of inexhaustible well of future curses yet to be said, right, from which you can keep drawing members. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry. Say that last thing again. I didn't I didn't hear what you said. Well, if, so think about it like this. Imagine um, – so on the A theory that Craig is committed to. Yeah, A theory of time. Yeah. Pre, uh, tensed – view of time right exactly so on that view time is distinguished uh, into three categories right the past the present and the future um and events start off being future then they become present then they become past right there's this kind of mm -hmm. temporal thing. becoming exactly yeah that's right and so the tenses work with that because you say something like you know some event let's call it p um starts off it starts off being true that it will be that p then it's true that it is the P, and then it's true that it was the P, right? That's why it's a tense yeah. state of time, because we have these fundamental facts, and those facts are, they change. Right? As you sit and wait for P to come along, it happens, then yeah. it can be off into the past again. 
Um, Whereas on a tensed view of time, it would be like slices of bread is the way I think of it. You mean there on a tenseless view of time? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, did I say ten, tense? You said tense, but yes, I know yeah, what you mean. Yeah, tense, tenseless view of time. All points on the timeline are equally real. There is uh, no distinction between past, present, and future, right? Yeah, base, that's basically right. I mean, that you can nuance this a little bit, but that's yeah, pretty Yeah, I'm just, for people listening who don't know these things, I'm trying to at least say something about them. <laughs> yeah. The, the difference between the A theory and the B theory is that um, on the A theory, you talk about events, like the event of, say, going to the dentist, right? which is that event is future. It has the property of being future. Then it has a property of being present, and then it has a property of being past. But on the B theory, what you have is you relate pairs of events, right? So you say things like um, the morning where I'm worrying about going to the dentist is earlier than the afternoon where I'm at the dentist, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens is you've got a fundamental relationship between two events. And in some senses, that those relationships on the B theory don't change, right? I mean, even though from my perspective, it feels like going to the dentist happens and then recedes off into the past. It's still true that my being worried about the dentist in the morning is earlier than being at the dentist. Right? That fact doesn't change. So on the B theory, the idea is it's not dynamic in that same way that it is on the A theory. You've got relations between pairs of events rather than properties of individual events. That's the clearest, best way to distinguish the A theory from the B theory. That was brilliant. I have not heard that way of distinguishing the two theories before. That was fantastic. <laughs> okay, good. So on so on this idea, what we're doing is we're saying, so we're thinking about it in terms of the A theory. So there's past, present, and future. And events start off having the properties of being future. Then they have the property of being present. Then they have the property of being past. Um now, think about the demon as he's saying he's cursing his fate, right? Each time he curses, he has, says a new curse. Well, you can think about it as a curse sort of moves from being in the future and jumps over into the present, and then it slips off into the past again, right? So for it to be true that the demon can continue to say curses without limit, ever increasing into the future without limit, there has to always be more future curses that are that can be moved across, if you like, from the future into the present, right? Um, okay. If so, if there were no future curses left for the demon to say, that would mean that the demon had come to the end of time, right? So yes, for him to always be able to keep saying curses. It has to be that there's always future curses left to say, right? No matter how many curses he says, there always has to be more there ready for him yeah. to say. So in some sense, if you just think about the future curses yet to be said, that set has a property that's very like the weird properties that Hilbert's Hotel was supposed to have, right? Because let's say, think about it. I'm removing one curse from the set of future curses and adding it to the set of past and present curses. But no matter how many I take out of the set of future curses, there's still the same number of curses left to be said. There's always uh, the same exact number, which is an actual completed infinities worth. So no matter how many you subtract from that, there's always the same number left. And this is exactly the type of property that Craig thinks is so absurd. You can't take away um, 
elements from a set and have the same number of um, elements left, right? If a, if a guest leaves yeah. Hilbert's hotel... That's the reductio. He's saying that because you get that conclusion, they can't be right. Right. That, that's absurd. Exactly. But the, but the point we're making is that um, for his answer, which is that there's that the number of curses that the demon is saying is merely a potential infinite, that actually has, as a kind of correlate to it, that there's an actual infinite, which is the number of curses yet to be said, which has all these weird properties that he thinks Hilbert's Hotel has. So in some sense, you can't have one without the other. So, you know, you can say that, of course, the number of curses that have been said is a potential infinite, if you like, but it's sort of inescapable that what that means is that there's an actual infinite, sort of just behind the scenes, constantly feeding the potential infinite as it grows forever, right? And that actual infinite has the absurd features that, that Craig makes so much out of. So in some senses, he's committed to that um, by taking this escape route. So Alex, do you know of any good objections to this argument that a potential infinite that goes on forever will lead to a completed infinity? Like, has Craig made any good obje- objections or other quam components? Well, no. So this, just to be clear, the, the idea is not so... Um, what, what the way that you said it then isn't what my claim was. So I'm not saying that um, the potential infinity at some point becomes a completed infinity. I don't think that happens. Right? It never becomes a completed infinity. But I'm just saying that at every stage, um, even at the first stage, even before the first stage, there's an actual infinity uh, just there already on the scene. Um, right, the set of future curses yet to be said. So it's not that the set of curses that have been said becomes a completed infinity it doesn't but it, there's always a set of future curses yet to be said which is always an actual infinity so right yes okay um and no i don't think there's any good objections to this argument because i haven't seen this exact argument in print before so i'm not sure that um the philosophical communities had enough time to cook up and uh, this probably is a, i don't know seems pretty straightforward to me that this argument works but um what craig says at several points um i don't think works so Sometimes Craig says things like um, that he's a presentist and a presentist is a kind of slightly, uh, it's not quite the same distinction as the A theory and the B theory. The presentist is someone who says that only the present moment exists, right? And that both the past and the future don't exist. Um, and, you know, that's the one that feels most like what our phenomenology is like, right? Um, arguably, uh, that we really only perceive the present and you can't perceive the, the future or the past. You can anticipate the future and you can remember the past, but in some senses that those are experiences that, that are going on in the present as well. So um, if Craig is a presentist, he can say, look, the, there are no future events, right? Because only the present exists. Um, and this, this move has been made and exposed already by different people in the, the literature. It's a great paper by a guy called Landon Hendrick, which um, I recommend to people which maybe I can send to you so you can link it. In. Yes, yes, for sure, in the description. So, but basically what he's pointing out there is just it's very straightforward that, you know, you can't, if you're a presentist, then, you know, the past doesn't exist either. So there's nothing absurd, you know, this end, uh, this beginningless past doesn't exist either. Right? So there's nothing right. It's not that. a symmetry breaker. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So. Oh, I see. That's, huh. Right. So sometimes Craig will say, well, you know, what about the moving block or the growing block theory? Right. Which is the um, the idea that, look, what's past 
uh, and what's present are real um, and the future's not real. Like the future is kind of mere potentiality um, yeah. as opposed to the, the present and the, and the past, which are kind of fixed and determined. It's kind of a hybrid A-B theory sort of. Yeah, yeah. Um, what this has got going for it is, is that um, this this theory mirrors the it mirrors some kind of fundamental asymmetry that we've got in time. Well, maybe not fundamental, but some kind of asymmetry that's very uh, noticeable. It might be entropy is what they're picking up. Uh, it might be the asymmetry of uh, the way that we come to know facts, which might be the same asymmetry as entropy. Um, but there's obviously something about the past which is more knowable to me than the future. So in particular, the things that are unknowable about the future are contingent things. So if I flip a coin... I can't know in advance whether it's going to land heads or tails, like barring some kind of super uh, omniscience about exactly what's the pro- microphysical yeah. problem of everything. Right? But in some senses, it's kind of contingent to me uh, and unknowable for that reason, whether the coin's going to land heads or tails. But a past flip of the coin is completely different. Right? I can just easily know whether the coin I flipped two minutes ago landed heads. Right? So I, I have access to past contingencies, I certainly don't have access to future contingencies because um, otherwise, you know, I'd go off and win the lottery or whatever tomorrow. So there is an asymmetry here. And, and then maybe this is the thing that Craig um, can appeal to uh, in order to make the case here. Um, but there's, I think, well, there's, there's several things you can say that, that undercut this um, potential symmetry breaker. I mean, the first one is that... Um, uh, so I like this one, right? With, so you can say, um, you can make a distinction, right? Which I guess it's a, a distinction I already drew, but you can dis- distinguish between there not being any future events because um, we've arrived at the final event, right? And time is about to come to an end. And you can distinguish between that and the view that there aren't any future events, but there will be, right? Um so obviously, so we distinguish between those two, we can call the first one the apocalyptic um, person as opposed to the kind of the presentist view, right? So mm-hmm. Craig is a presentist, but he's not an apocalyptist, right? He doesn't think that this very moment is the last one. So when he says there are no future moments, um, he's still committed to the idea that there will be. And you can draw this distinction in the A theory. Um, so there's a certain type of logic, which is, goes along with the A theory called tense logic. Um, and in that you have operators that are tenses like will be and was. And you can show that there's a formula which is true if you're at the final moment or a formula which is true if there will be a final moment. Um, it's basically, it will, uh, it, it's that it will be that it's not the case that it will be that P. And that's true if there is a final moment. Right? It's basically saying that at some point, it won't be that there will be any other things. Right? If that's true, then that means that there's a last moment. And I think that Craig thinks that formula is false because he thinks that there's a life ever after. It's never going to stop. Right? There won't ever actually be a final moment. So when he says that there, there are no future moments because of this asymmetry, he's drawing growing block theory. Um, he's, he's obviously not going to be in a, um, he's not endorsing this apocalyptic formula. Right? What he's doing is saying, um, there, there aren't right now any future moments. But when you start to say it like that, well, that's that's really obvious that there aren't now future moments. But because he's committed to the fact that there will be future moments, we can still say, you know, how many curses will the demon say? 
right? How many future moments will there be? And the only sensible answer to that is, well, there's always going to be more future moments, right? Because this potential infinity is increasing towards the future without limit. So there always has to be more future curses or more future moments yet to, to happen. So even if you did say that, that those moments don't exist now, as long as you're careful to draw the distinction between being a presentist and someone who believes that this is the very last moment, um, you can still show that Craig is committed to their being true, that there will be more future moments. So I don't think that that appeal works either. I don't, does that make sense? I'm happy to try and explain that better if, if that wasn't clear. I'm not sure how that uh, will lead to the implication that there are actually infinitely many things at any given time that exist. Um, there will just be, uh, there will always be more, but at any given time, even in the future, uh, the, the whole history will be finite, maybe. So, mm-hmm. yeah, That's I'm true. not sure. So the claim isn't that at any one point an infinite number of things exists. I don't think that that's necessarily true. The claim is just that um, on the A theory, the future um, has to be if if um, if the series. So think about the demons' praises. Um, it's true that at any moment the number of praises that the demon will have said will be a finite number. So I'm not saying that at any point there'll be an infinite number of of curses that have been said mm-hmm. but the, the thought is that there's um you can still think about and quantify over the number of praises that are yet to be said that will be said and um that has to be considered as a completed infinity so uh does that make sense <laughs> i mean uh i'm trying to sell this but <laughs> please tell me if you yeah so I have a question, uh, and maybe in asking the question, it can help clarify some points, maybe. Mm-hmm. So, they were, again, we're talking about the second premise where the universe began to exist because there can't be this endless set, set of, you know, events. And so Craig says that there's philosophical arguments for this premise and there's cosmological arguments for this premise you're we're focusing on the philosophical arguments for this premise Mm -hmm. but so would you say that one of the objections that you're trying to push with this is that the universe didn't begin to to exist that there is or are you just saying it's possible and that, that just this philosophical argument doesn't work for the conclusion the way craig is saying it works yeah, so Craig's, Craig's saying that um, the past couldn't be beginningless because um, such uh, such a thing would have the absurd features of Hilbert's Hotel. And notice mm-hmm. that that claim, for that claim to work, Craig isn't making the claim that there currently exists in any sense, that like presently exists any infinite collection of, of things right they're, they're all past right so um for an atheist they don't all exist in, in any sense at the same time they, they're in the past but he thinks that's enough to be absurd anyway right he's sufficiently like uh, hilbert's hotel for it to be absurd um and i mean 
you know, you could you could argue that there's a disanalogy between Hilbert's Hotel and this anyway, which you were talking about before. Oppie's point about, you know, you can't, I mean, for Hilbert's Hotel to be absurd, it has to be such that uh, guests check in and check out. Right? You have to be able to say things like, well, it's full, but let's get everyone to shuffle up one room and, and we've managed to find a room. Right? And that seems like it's weird and absurd or, you know, ask a bunch of all the even numbered guests to leave and there's still an infinite number of guests there even though you've taken away an infinite number of guests right with these examples are supposed to be um absurd um but you know you you can't take away uh, moments of time right at least on the a theory one you know temporal passage goes in one direction um and that's a metaphysical fact if anything's a metaphysical fact supposedly um so if that's true then i mean what are you talking about when you're saying uh, drawing an analogy here, like how can guests, it's a, it's a Hilbert's hotel that guests can't check out of, right? So how can it make any of these, uh, absurd features? This is Oppie's point. And I think it's pretty good. It seems to me that's pretty good. Uh, it's just disanalogous, right? It's, it's in some yeah. sense a passive infinity, the past, even if it's, uh, completed infinity. So, um, yeah, that, so that's another way of attacking it. Okay. John just joined us, and now that we got John with us, John, go ahead, introduce yourself. Hi, Alex. Uh, my name's John Apollato. I, um, I go by, uh, I was going by counter-apologist on the, on YouTube and on the internet. Um, glad to be able to join you guys. I've been struggling to get here. <laughs> um, I was listening, actually, and I did want to ask a question. You were talking about how Craig would, might be committed to an infinite number of future events. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, uh, another, I thought of a, another possible way he might be committed to an actual infinite number of things. Um, one of them would be, uh, Craig is a Molinist in terms of he talks about how God, uh, basically envisioned all possible, uh, wor- all, out of all possible worlds that exist, God actualizes the world in which a person freely chooses to do any action, so to speak, right? Um, and so we still freely make the action, uh, the choice, but God actualizes the world uh, where we do, you know, whatever choice that whatever choice happens to be, right? For all set of the entire set of people. Um, but given his commitment to that, it seems to me there would be an actual infinite number of possible worlds. It could be, you know, forever. However many people there are that exist, you could always have you know, one more, so to speak. And so there there would always be almost an infinite number of permutations of free choices that, you know, or whatever this total set of people who will get created or could be created. And so this would be an actual infinite number of facts that God would have to know. Or an um, actual infinite amount of kind of factuals. Yeah, so Craig's Craig's response to the idea, so there's a whole bunch of objections in the literature about that are versions of the um, God knows infinite things uh, objection, right? Um, so like, you know, God knows all of the um, answers to every mathematical like equation, right? So mm-hmm. we can think of like, we could line them up, right? Like one plus one, one plus two, one plus three. For each of those, God knows what the answer is, 
so, and it's not just like he's constantly doing more and more sums. In, you know, it's not a potential infinity. He's not finding them out. He knows them all, right? So it's a completed infinity. Therefore, God knows infinite things. Therefore, God's a completed infinity. Therefore, God's like Hilbert's Hotel, so God can't exist, right? That's the mm-hmm. general gist of these types of arguments. I think that's the way you're going with this. Um, you know, God has to know this sprawling, infinite landscape of possibilities. So each one of those is something that God knows. So God knows an infinite number of things, blah, 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 right? So... I think Craig's response is to say that God just doesn't have propositional knowledge at all. He doesn't have, he doesn't know, he just has one kind of, um, unified kind of vision of everything at once and it's not split into propositions in any way. So he, so he takes this kind of, uh, um, Thomistic view, but yeah, he kind of, he kind of just points a bit at, at one of the traditional views of God's knowledge, which is that it's non-propositional and just says, well, it might be like that. So. Um, that's how you get propositional. It seems almost analogous to how a B theorist would conceive of time, almost. Basically, the idea, like a B theorist would think, if you were, if you were a B theorist, you would think that the, there is no such thing as the present. There would basically be the past and the future. There are basically points in time. And there is no such thing as the past now, going out of existence. Now. I'm sorry? Earlier than now and later than now, right? Right. Um, but so if you're like a space-time realist, the future is as real as the past is, ontologically speaking, right? Mm-hmm. There is, uh, like if you're a block theorist of time, um, like the past moment in time never went out of existence. They just all kind of exist altogether. I see. And so you're saying that the Craig's response by saying that God has knowledge non-propositionally is a bit like that because he just sort of apprehends all of it um, as a big unified whole rather than like um, in portioned out into little bits. Is that the idea? Yes. Yeah. Yes, sir. Well, I suppose in some sense that, that analogy is, is, um, is, is it's not bad as an analogy uh, for, for explaining the point. And Craig, I think, uses, um, I think it's Alston who, who, and Alston's one of, Craig's big um, kind of influences, um, and Alston himself uses uh, a model that um, I think possibly Bradley, um, who's the guy who came up with the A theory and the B theory in the first place. Uh, it's not uh, McTaggart. Oh, sorry, yeah, it was McTaggart. Right? McTaggart. Bradley, Bradley and McTaggart were in this school of like uh, British idealism, um, and yeah. they held to this type of picture. So I think it's, yeah, you're right, it's McTaggart's paradox, obviously, but so I think it's Bradley's idea of this, um, uh, and, and, you know, I don't fully understand this. It just, it doesn't really make much sense to me, but the idea, the, the analogy is supposed to be like this. Look, you can behold a painting, right, and take it all in as one unified whole, right? and that's the way that God's knowledge is supposed to be. Right? It's not proposition, not broken up into little bits, so he just apprehends all of the painting, as it were, all at the same time. And of course, you know, you can focus in on each individual brush stroke, if you like, and think about it like that. But um, you, you certainly don't have to. And that's not the way that God apprehends it. Maybe we are stuck, you know, looking at one brush stroke at a time or something. But God kind of beholds the whole totality uh, in all of its magnificent magnificence and sort of sees and understands it all, uh, all as one. Um, I'm not sure. I, 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 I just... It just I it seems to me that even if you were to say that, wouldn't it be true that there's still an infinite number of brushstrokes in the hole? 
Yeah, I thought the objection was supposed to be that um, it's to do with God knowing the collection. Right. So, right. so th- this type of objection is that, you know, God's knowledge is somehow an infinite collection. And that makes God impossible <laughs> on Craig's view. That's how these arguments are supposed to run. Um, but me, so, so you're saying something like, um, well, look, the, there's an infinite number of possible worlds, right? So that's, that infinite number of possible worlds itself is something that's infinite and therefore that couldn't exist. And I think Craig might just say, yeah, you know what? It doesn't really exist, right? Only the actual world, it really exists. Um, those worlds, they're not real, right? He's not committed to them being real in the same way that he is to the actual world being real. So he'll just say, sure, yeah, yeah, that's true. They're possible worlds, but they're not actual. They're not concrete. Yeah, yeah, they're not part of our ontology, so to speak. They don't have ontologically weighty features. They're just merely possible. Uh, So in order for the objection to work, it would have to be God's knowledge of those worlds or those those possibilities, which the objection would get around, I see. Yeah, I mean, well, that's if if you're trying to pose the objection in the way I thought you were in the first place. Yeah, you're trying to pin the absurd property on God Himself and saying, um, I mean, that, that's that's what's nice about this type of argument is it's supposed to say, well, look, Craig, you know, on your view, God Himself is impossible. You know, how do you like damn apples, kind of thing? But like, um, <laughs> you know, oh, really? Can that be the subtitle of the paper? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I think he's, you know, that, that type of move where he says, oh, well, what if God's knowledge is non-propositional? It kind of sweeps away most of those versions of the argument, right? Because unless you've got some really good way of explaining why it couldn't be non-propositional and it has to be propositional, uh, it's hard to know. It's hard to see how that objection is going to stick. Um, so, yeah. I just, I find it so strange, uh, I know I'm kind of going off topic here, but just saying that God couldn't have propositional knowledge. And now I've always thought that, you know, there's these two kinds of knowledge, there's propositional knowledge and then there's knowledge by acquaintance. So knowledge by acquaintance is, is knowledge by like our experiences. So like I know what it's like to go skydiving or something. I know what it's like to taste strawberries. That would be, that's not propositional knowledge, it's knowledge by acquaintance. Well, most theologians would kind of press back and say, well, maybe God, as part of his omniscience, doesn't have all knowledge by acquaintance. He might not know what it's like, you know, to die. He doesn't know what it's like to sin, yeah. Yeah, or something like that. But but he would have all proposition knowledge, meaning he would know all true propositions. So then if you take that off the table, well, then what does it even mean to say God has knowledge? Like, it's not propositional knowledge, it's not knowledge by acquaintance, but it's just all of it. But, I mean, I think that the move is to say um, human knowledge and divine knowledge are just not analogous. Well, well, the only sense in which they're similar is by analogy. So you can't speak of, yeah. move, you can't talk univocally about um, divine knowledge. It's just different from human knowledge. So humans only have two types of knowledge. God's got this other one, which is kind of divine apprehension or something, where he just beholds yeah. everything or whatever, right? So, I mean, you know, it, there's, there's really no limits to your imagination when you're thinking about what God could be like. So, I mean, it could be like that, for all I know. Right. Um, that's Yeah, that, that's how I get out of the idea of how a timeless mind could exist. It seems almost equivalent to saying there's a spaceless mountain. I think uh, it's Stephen Law's analogy. Um, yeah. And I just don't see how... Um, 
and it almost seems to me like the fact that the universe is a finite theoretically um, is almost as much a problem because you know why isn't it older or younger? Like if God eternally willed to create the universe, or He willed from eternity to create the universe, how come the universe isn't as old as God? Right? I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. That uh, just seems actually taking that so, question I mean, head on. Okay. I can tell you what Craig's answer is to that, which is that um, uh, roughly anyway, he, he distinguishes between um, a relational and an absolute uh, view of time. Um, one way to think about that is the difference between a Newtonian and a Leibnizian view of time. But on the Newtonian view, time is like a, a kind of fish tank or something in which it's a container in which events are situated and they have their position um, in a kind of absolute sense, right? So, um, so on the Newtonian view, you might have it that there's, say, some period of empty time, like a hundred years or something, um, and then yeah, yeah. the first physical event takes place, right? And then stuff kicks off from that, and then maybe there's some period where everything freezes for like a hundred years, and then everything kicks off again. When there's that like hundred year period where nothing's happening in the middle, is is uh, is because there's the, the kind of absolute frame of time uh, just shows that there's an empty yeah. space there. Right? On the relational view, um, the time is just is just the distance between events. So like um, you can't have it. It doesn't make any sense to say that there's nothing, no physical events, and then after a hundred years, the first physical event takes place. Um, all there is is just like there's you know the first physical event and then there's like the 50th physical event after that it's just 50 units of event or something later on it's, we're just talking about the relations between events rather than one event having a reference in relation to this kind of absolute um, container of time so the idea there is supposed to be that it doesn't make any sense for, to even ask the question you know, why didn't god create the universe you know, five minutes earlier than he did um time starts when god makes the universe right there is no time there's no like dynamic movement of time before that. God creates time when that happens because Craig's got a relational view of time, and when the first event is is created, that's when time starts. So he thinks the huh. question of why doesn't God make the universe five minutes earlier is uh, is meaningless. And, and Leibniz said that the question of why does the universe not start five minutes earlier is also meaningless, right? It doesn't make any sense. Whereas on the Newtonian view, that's supposed to be a kind of coherent question. So. Craig's helping himself to a reasonably well-established distinction. Not to say that we know that time is relational, but it's at least on the table as a as a way of talking about these things. I see. Huh. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> no, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't think it, I hadn't thought of it that way. That's very good. So, you're, so again, again, coming back to the philosophical scientific distinction, uh, Nothing that you're arguing for here butts up against contemporary cosmology, right? Right. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not saying anything about contemporary cosmology whatsoever. So, so I'm saying like a, a, a rebuttal couldn't be, well, if this is what, you know, the view, if you're going to take this view, then you're just going against all of, con- you're just rejecting contemporary cosmology. No, so, so let's say contemporary cosmology suggests that the universe had a beginning. I'm not, I'm 100% convinced that that is what contemporary cosmology says, but let's say that that's what it says. 
And let's even strengthen that so that contemporary cosmology proved that there had to be a beginning. Um, that wouldn't change anything about what I'm saying either. I'm just simply saying that Craig's reason for showing that the universe had to have a beginning, the philosophical argument, doesn't work on its own right. There might be other reasons, um, and cosmology yeah. might say that there had to be, but this argument, and specifically the argument was yeah. about that, you know, it would be an actual, um, well, really, look, the argument is that it would make an actual infinity, and an actual infinity is absurd. Now, I have objections of, to that. I mean, I'm not just, I'm just not sure it's absurd for the type of OP reasons we were talking about before. I'm just, I just don't see what's so absurd about it. On the other hand, what, what's really going on is that I'm saying even more nuanced than that. One of Craig's reasons for rebutting, so, the, so I started off by saying that, uh, if Craig wants to rule out the beginningless past from, as being in, as being absurd, then surely he should rule out the endless future as being absurd as well, right? But if he's committed to, um, the afterlife never ending, then he seems to be having um, one actual infinite um, and not saying that that's absurd, but ruling out another one and saying that that's absurd. So that's where the dialectic comes in. It's really the question is, can you sustain um, is yeah. there a relevant symmetry breaker to, to have that kind of view? Or do you have to throw away the, the endless future as if you throw away the beginning as past? That, that's what I'm saying is I think really he has to um, just to be consistent, there isn't a relevant symmetry breaker, essentially. That's my claim. I feel like heaven ends up throwing in some pretty big thorns in, in regards like, cause, cause you're right, it does, if he, if he believes in heaven, then he's got this problem there, like you said, but if he doesn't believe in heaven, that problem goes away, right? Like if he says, look, I believe in this perfect being, but I'm no longer a Christian theist, and I don't, Think there is an this problem doesn't arise for yeah, that. Sure. He could say, um, well, look, by heaven, I don't mean, um, uh, so, so I assume what he means by heaven is an, a potentially, like an endless series. What well, he's going to say, it's a potential infinite, right? I mean, this is, he more or less doesn't relate, relate it to heaven, but he does say specifically that there's nothing absurd about an endless future. Um, and yes. the thought would be he's doing that because he's the, you know, theologically committed to it. On the other hand, he could just shrug his shoulders and say, do you know what, actually, yeah, the future has to come to an end as well. That's what happens in the end of times or whatever. Some, you know, maybe that's the, he chooses yeah. that theology. And then um, he might say, look, heaven doesn't mean a never ending sequence of pleasurable events and hell doesn't mean a never ending sequence of painful events. In fact, heaven is just, uh, one unified union with God or something, right? And hell just means one kind of one disunion with God or something like that, right? And it's not a, it's not an infant sequence. In which case, you know, that, that my argument goes off the table. I'm just assuming that it doesn't. So one thing, uh, that I can think of is I remember it was, I think it was an interview that Craig did with Robert Kuhn on the Closer to the Truth show on PBS. Okay. Where he talks about how um, once God created time, he can't end it. I think because he, I'm trying to remember the exact argument. I think he said it results in kind of a contradiction. Um, if there was, if, if God were to end time, um, unfortunately I can't remember the specifics. Um, I almost might have to leave that for the listener to look up on YouTube. Um, that's interesting. Though. But I'm pretty sure he was committed to the idea that, once time has been created, it couldn't be ended without it. It basically would be impos- logically impossible to end it without there being some kind of a logical contradiction. Yeah, and he also said something like God 
it, like the cause and its effect are simultaneous. The same yes, God he is committed time. to absolute simultaneous. Yeah, he's yeah, committed to that. God is outside of time prior to creation and comes inside of time at the same moment of creation. Yeah, that's how he gets around the causes preceding their effects, um, which I think is something that I don't think works particularly well with general relativity. Alex, what do you think is the strongest objection? So uh, you're saying it, it, I know it hasn't really been on the street long enough, but what do you, your biggest worry about the, the object, uh, your argument? Um, well, the way I predict, if, I mean, say, say the paper gets accepted and Craig responds in print, my prediction is that the, I mean, we tried to anticipate this a bit, but I, I think he's still going to say something like this. The, the future is merely potentiality, right? Remember what I was saying about Craig doesn't believe that all possible worlds exist, right? He's, he just thinks they're just merely possible, right? Um, I think he's going to say the same thing about the future. He's going to say, listen, um, they're always, you know, the, 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 uh, the way that future events uh, can be said to exist is as mere potentialities, right? Possibilities in some sense or another. They're not actual, they're possible. And there's a danger here of running together and misunderstanding, of running together the idea of uh, the distinction between being possible and being actual, and the difference between a completed infinity, which is often called an actual infinity, and a potential infinity, right? There's, those two things are, have similar words in them, but then have nothing to do with each other, right? If yeah. and you can talk about the future being potential in this kind of Aristotelian sense in which possibility resides in the future, that's fine. That's a, an established kind of metaphysical view. Um, but the sense in which the future is merely potential and not actual um, isn't the same as the distinction between uh, it's, it's got nothing to do with having, you know, parts that can be laid in one to one correspondence with their proper sub parts or whatever. It, it's nothing to do with that. Um, so. There's a danger of conflating those two things, but I, what I think he's going to say is that, you know, he doesn't, he, you know, even though in some senses there's always got to be future events ready to become present events and then to become past, that well of future events doesn't exist. So he's not committed to it existing. It's merely potential. And that diffuses the charge that he's committed to there existing something which is actually infinite. Um, I, I think that's probably the way that the dialectic is one. Things all we're doing is refining the very same point over and over again. Um, and that's pretty much the way he, he likes to run this already. Um, so we try to anticipate that a little bit. Um, and, I, you know, the paper might change as it goes through review. So it might be different by the time it comes out. But at the moment, we have a section where we try and anticipate that. Um, you know, what if the future is uh, merely uh, potentiality? So one of the things... Craig, as, as we talked about before, Craig's committed to the idea that but Craig's a Molinist, right? So God knows all counterfactual truths about what agents would do if they'd been yeah. in different circumstances. But he also, you know, according to Molinism, God also knows what agents will in fact end up choosing to freely do, right? So um, God already knows what's going to happen, right? It might not be propositional knowledge, but, but it's still... There is some sense in which it's determined, it's determinant what's going to happen because God already knows that. Um, and that seems to mean, it seems to me anyway, that that's enough to say that there's such a thing as the actual future, that you can't really consider 
the future merely a bundle of potentiality. If, you know, let's say I'm going to flip a coin, right? It could, it could land heads, it could land tails, right? Both are possible. But actually, God knows in advance which way it's going to land, right? So one of them really is actual in advance anyway. So it already makes I me, mean, the, the extent of the actual world for Craig, it seems to me, it already extends into the future, right? Pick, because God knows what contingent things are going to happen. So, well, it's not, it's not that the future actually exists, but that there are actual truths now about what the future will be like. Yeah. Right. That's right. So, so the idea that you can just say, well, you know, the future's all indeterminate and merely potential doesn't really work if you believe that God knows which, uh, which way all the possible coin flips are going to land. Um, seems to be that you're committed to, uh, kind of slither of actuality extending into the future. Uh, amongst all of the possible ways that it might go. Um, that view is sometimes called the thin red line, which is like the idea that you know, if you drew all of the possibilities as a, a branching tree uh, in front of the, the this moment now, one of those future possible futures is sort of distinguished in red, um, and that's the one that God can anticipate and knows is going to happen. So it seems to me that that diffuses somewhat the, the idea that Craig can just sort of shrug his shoulders and say, listen, I'm not committed to any of these things being existing uh, on the basis that the future is just potentiality. Uh, it doesn't seem like um, we're wandering off into sort of a slightly uncharted territory here. It's not quite clear whether that response is decisive or whether my response to that response is uh decisive either i'm kind of having to anticipate to some extent here we would get into what's known as the truth maker problem of uh how there can be truths about the future when there are no future objects uh and i think the normal response that metaphysicians of time make uh is that there are forward-looking properties that are instantiated by present objects or past objects i guess uh, if it's a growing block theory, um, mm-hmm. that uh, ground the truth of things about the future. And so it could be true that there will always be more moments in the future, but that doesn't mean that there are infinitely many things in the present or past. There could be just finitely many uh, forward-looking properties that make that true or I don't know exactly how it would work. Um, or, I, yeah, I see what you mean. I, and I don't think I need it to be that there are infinitely many things in the present or past for the objection to work. Uh, there could be finitely many things in the present and past. Um, but so long as the future is never going to end, uh, so say I, the future is an actual infinite in that case. Um, so it's not that there are infinitely many things that do exist, but it's that there are infinitely many things that will exist. And that's bad enough. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it is a problem. I mean, if he also thinks uh, that a beginningless past is a, is absurd, even if the past doesn't actually exist. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. So it, it, exactly. And, and so it's this trying to, if it feels to me like, um, that it's sort of, there's some kind of air of desperation on, I feel like Craig's on the run here a little bit in the sense that, um, 
he's trying to find some way of plugging this gap. Right? It's got, he thinks it's got to be some way of um, making a symmetry breaker here. Something must tell the difference between why the um, infinite past is absurd, but the infinite future isn't. Um, and all of the ways that he proposes so far that I know of, things like, well, the future doesn't really exist, or the future is just mere potentiality, or you can't count to infinity. These are the main things that he suggests. None of them, it seems to me, really do anything to diffuse the claim. Because it, I mean, if we go back to the mathematical example I was saying at the beginning, um, it, it doesn't make sense logically. It doesn't make any sense to have um, a, a, you know, a function that takes input uh, and spits out output such that it's a potential infinite. If you, if you have a function that's like that, I can show you that it follows logically that there's another function which works just like it, but which always has an actual completed infinity as its output. And that mathematical result, seems to me, means that um, we're only ever going to be hand-waving away some kind of escape route. It's not going to be a hard, proper refutation. You know, there's, it's, it's going to be creating, well, yeah, but, you know, Maybe if metaphysics-y kind of solution thing works like this, but really there's always going to be another way of packaging out the objection that I think me and Morriston are, are outlining because there's a hard mathematical result underneath it. So, um, yeah, I, it might just become increasingly um, nuanced and uninteresting to the general audience, but I don't suppose he's ever going to find a very convincing way out of this, seems to me. Yeah, well, let's try to anticipate one more reply. So let's say mm-hmm. Craig um, just retracts the claim that a beginningless past is absurd, even if it doesn't exist. Okay. Uh, then, then is there a problem still with his argument? No, uh, but I think then that one of the no, I think what that does is it. So the this premise of the Kalam is usually given two philosophical supports. Um, and also, you know, support from cosmology. Uh, one, this one is that an actual infinity can't exist. It's impossible. Um, if he made the retraction you were suggesting, that would be a ba- basically to concede that uh, that argument. That would right. leave uh, just the other philosophical um, argument, which is that um, an actual uh, that, that um, an actual infinity can't be generated by a successive addition. Um, which I think is a worse argument than, than the one we're fighting with here anyway. So to me, it leaves the argument um, almost entirely resting on cosmology at that point. Um, and, and I think you know, no one can really say with any... I mean, ask a, a cosmologist uh, what they think is the, answer, uh, is the answer to whether or not the, the universe is finite towards the past. And they'll, they might tell you what they think. You know, ask them to bet their house on that. I don't think anyone would do that. Um, things change so have changed so much in the last hundred years in cosmology. Who, who knows, really? So even if cosmology currently supports um, it being finite towards the past, it, it could all change in the future. So if, if the Kalam completely rests on cosmology, I think it's on rather shaky ground altogether. That's why Craig has philosophical arguments as well. Right. So we've been going for about an hour now, and so this is this will kind of a great segue into a final question. What what do you think is the strongest objection to the Kalam? What do you see as just the big thorn in the side of that argument? Um, <laughs> uh, 
Um, you, have to, you can only pick one. You can only pick I one. can only pick one. Um, <laughs> you can only pick one. So make it good. Well, I suppose, I mean, I've already mentioned it, but I, I rather like Oppie's rebuttal to the idea that the past being infinite uh, only really becomes, only really manifests anything that looks like absurdity um, if it's if it's active rather than passive. Um, and it, it seems quite straightforwardly to be passive. Right? You can't change the past. That seems to be as certain a metaphysical truth as any. Um, mm. But that's what the argument requires for it to generate anything that looks even remotely absurd. Um, I suppose another way of looking at this is that um, there is a kind of just simply like a, adopting the correct linguistic procedure seems to be able to diffuse most of the absurdities as well. And, and so... Um, you, you said this was the final question, so I'll try, I'll try and make this quite brief. But so there's the idea that uh, what you're doing when you say uh, remove a book from the infinite library, um, only to find that there's still the same number of books in the infinite library as there were before you removed the book. Um, the, the idea is that that is in some sense supposed to be um, analogous to subtraction in in mathematics. Um, but uh, what mathematicians will tell you is that um, the, the notion of subtraction in transfinite arithmetic is undefined. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to say that. So there's some kind of question mark over the legitimacy of the analogy between picking up a book and taking it off an infinite shelf um, and the notion of subtraction in, in mathematics. And it seems like there's a kind of need this analogy to work for the um, absurdity to, to follow. Because here's how it works. So... Uh, on the one hand, you've got you've got a kind of clash of two principles. Right? One of them is called Hume's principle, and that basically says that um, if you take any two sets, um, if you compare every member of one set to for each member of one set, you compare it to a unique member of the other set. Then this, you have two sets that have the same number of elements in. So take my the knives and the forks in my cutlery set, right? For each knife, I compare it with a unique fork until I've got no knives left over. Right? And that shows you that there are no forks left over. And then that fact that I can pair them up like that is what it means for them to have the same number. There's the same number of forks as there are knives. And, and saying, well, what does having the same number means? It means I can do this procedure. I can pair them. So that's Hume's principle is that if you can put things into a one-to-one correspondence, that's what it means for them to have the same number. And then you've got this other thing called, sometimes called Euclid's maxim, which is that if you take a set and you take a subset of that, a proper subset of that set, then the proper subset has fewer elements in than the original set. So if I take the cutlery set and I just take away the spoons, right, there are, that's a, the spoons is a proper subset of the cutlery set. Um, and that means that there's fewer spoons then there are items in the cutlery set. Right? There's, that's what it, if, if it's a proper subset, that means it's fewer than the whole. But in other words, the part is smaller than the whole. A proper part is smaller than the whole. Um, and, well, you can avoid Craig's charge of absurdity by just dropping one of these, basically. And that's kind of what happens when you get to transfinite arithmetic, when you're talking about infinities. Really what happens is that um, Euclid's maxim just goes, right? With an infinite set, 
the proper part isn't necessarily smaller than the whole, right? The, the even numbers is a proper part of the natural numbers, but it's not small. It's not, there's not fewer even numbers than there are natural numbers. There's the same number, they can, according to Hume's principle. So if we keep Hume's principle but drop Euclid's maxim, there's no contradiction. On the other hand, you could do it the other way around. You could keep um, Euclid's principle but drop Hume's maxim um, and just simply give up the idea that if you can, even though you compare the natural numbers with the even numbers, that still doesn't mean that they're the same amount. Right? You could just hold on to the idea that the, the natural, that the, the, the even numbers is obviously fewer than the natural numbers. You could just plant your flag in the sand at that point and not move it. And no one can make you inconsistent if you do that either. So really, there's two strategies. You just have to kind of say that, you know, one way of thinking about this is that when we got into mathematics and figured this stuff out properly, we realized that um, uh, when you're thinking about transfinite mathematics, those one of those two principles has to go. And, you know, if Hilbert's Hotel was real, if there really was a Hilbert's Hotel in the universe somehow, somewhere, you know, if we just went off in a spaceship for long enough and just found it, and, you know, there's this dude and it says Hilbert's Hotel and you ask him how many people are here and he says there's infinite number of people here and he just does all this stuff that Craig says is absurd and you just like see it and you go, well, that's weird. One way of thinking about what's going on there is that you've empirically discovered that <laughs> Euclid's principle is not true, right? That there is, in fact, somewhere in the universe where there's an object such that a proper part of it is, uh, is, has the same cardinality to the whole, right? That, you know, we thought that Euclid's principle was true in the actual world, but it's not universally true. Right? That that could happen, and so it seems to me that I can imagine it happening. Um, and if and I just don't see what's wrong with there's all sorts of crazy stuff in the world, right? Superpositions with these string theory, Trump. You know, we no one can say that they understand all of this properly. Um, it seems to me that that could just happen. And, and if it does, then you know, so what? There go all of these arguments. So I'll stop there. But it just seems to me that that's that's one way of characterizing what I see as the kind of major flaw in this argument. Yeah. It just it seems to me it's not absurd, even on yeah, its own. Terms. Just a glaring problem there. Ben, did you yeah. have anything else? Mm. Well, so you can say that there are things in the world we know exist that are weird, absurd, like uh, quantum mechanics is really weird. Um, but we have all this evidence that quantum mechanics is true. Yeah, and you might think we don't have as much evidence uh, that there are actual infinities or that actual infinities are possible. Mm. Right. Well, um, I don't have any evidence that an actual infinity exists, but I have no evidence in either direction as to whether they're possible. Um, they could be possible. I mean, I can imagine it being the case. I'm not saying it is the case. I can't support that claim, but I think all you need to do, in the absence of evidence in either direction, is just sort of explain what would ha- what it would be like if, if that was to, to happen. Um, and I think I can, I think I just tried to explain it as clearly as I could, that if I empirically stumbled across Hilbert's Hotel, I wouldn't say, oh, I must have gone mad because Craig's arguments against this being metaphysically possible are so convincing that uh, I could. Right. I would say, yeah. you know what, Craig was wrong and I've somehow empirically discovered that, even though it didn't seem possible, you know, people couldn't imagine it. It, it actually is the case. And, you know, people couldn't possibly imagine um, the internal angles of a triangle adding up to more than 180 degrees. But basically, general relativity shows that that is the case in certain parts of 
the actual world that we live in, you know, on the outskirts of a black hole or whatever, space time is warped to such an extent that that sort of thing is, is the case when non-Euclidean geometry is very obvious there. So, you know, Kant couldn't possibly imagine that. He thought Euclidean geometry was a priori true of, of the actual world. Um, and it just turns out we empirically discovered that it, but it wasn't. And I just, I just think that when we don't know one way or the other, um, I think that I can perfectly well imagine what it would be like to come across Hilbert's Hotel, and I don't really see what the problem is there. I would just adopt a different kind of linguistic convention or something. I would just say, yeah, you know, yeah, Hume's principle and Euclid's maxim don't go together, and Euclid's maxim goes. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap everything up. Alex Malpis, thank you so much for coming and talking with us about the Kalam. Um, I will try to link the episode 19, which was the Kalam, into the description. If you're watching this on a podcast, check out episode 19. It's all about the Kalam. Um, and this discussion hopefully has helped enlighten some people on both sides of the aisle as to some of the intricacies of the argument and places where we think that it's weak. So, um, Ben, do you have anything else to close out, sign off? Nope. Just thanks for the discussion. Uh, all right. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks very much. If you appreciate the tone and content of what real theology has to offer, please consider writing a review for us on iTunes. All music was created by Work of Wolves. We here at Real A Theology would like to thank our Patreons. Kashi Savarina, Paul Pinos, Richard Kane, Lucas Stewart, Brandon McClarity, John Damon, Michael Tolfsrud, Roe Wilms, Ed Atkinson, Kid Blachowski, Andrew Schneider, Jason McLuta, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Sange. If you're interested in supporting Real Atheology, you can please come to our page at patreon.com slash realatheology.